Section 20 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15 The Northern War. With the successful termination of his first parliament, Edward IV might have breathed freely. All within a few months he had scattered the Lancastrian forces in a fearful rout. He had been crowned king and had been recognized by an enthusiastic parliament. The most skillful warriors were on his side with their large bands of soldiers. His ships patrolled the sea. He had himself journeyed throughout the country as king and established his power wherever he went. The extinction of the Lancastrian party seemed only a question of time. That it was not extinguished was due almost entirely to Queen Margaret. As long as strength remained in her, she was indomitable. The most fearful defeats could not break her spirit. With each new disaster, she set herself doggedly to build up her party afresh. Her husband could do little but remain quietly in Scotland, waiting till Margaret, having brought her plans to success, should call upon him to appear. But she herself took no rest. Amid want and privation, Almost unattended, she went from place to place, gathering together the threads of a counter-revolution which few hoped to see. Often in the greatest personal danger from violent men, in the country exposed to robbers, on the sea exposed to King Edward's sailors, or the pirate crews that still infested the seas round England. Once even having to take to an open boat to face stormy weather off the Northumbrian coast, even in these fearful trials she never flinched. In England, in Scotland, then in France and in Flanders, she ceaselessly wrought with unwilling people to lend their tardy help. Three years' unremitting work saw her party together once more in force, and holding the strongholds of Northumberland more firmly established, as it seemed, at least in the north of England but once again in rapid succession defeat followed defeat. Once more those Lancastrians who could save themselves were scattered to the winds, and once more Margaret, amid the ruin of all she had worked for, was left to piece together the fragments and to pit her own weak strength and influence against the vast resources and the all-pervasive statesmanship of the Yorkist king. It is not always easy to follow the movements of the Lancastrians after the disaster at Towton. They had two friendly countries to look to, France and Scotland. But for some time the king and queen were able to stay in England. On April 18th it was reported that Henry VI and his wife were in some castle in Yorkshire, Corumbir, such a name it hath or much like. It may only have been some fortified farm. He seems to have nearly been captured there, as it was beset by Yorkist gentlemen, but some followers of the Percy family made a diversion by attacking the besiegers in the midst of which Henry stole away at a little postern on the back side. Henry with the Queen then fled northward to the town of Berwick, the great border fortress which had been so often coveted and besieged by the Scots, but which was still in Lancastrian hands. He at once admitted the enemy into the town, 
so that at the beginning of May the past and correspondence contains the intelligence that Berwick is full of Scots. The royal family, Prince Edward was with his father and mother all the time, then passed on into Scotland, apparently to Edinburgh, full of trouble and heaviness, no wonder. They had lost a kingdom. Even a roof above their heads was only gained by the barter of their country's strongholds. The condition of Scotland at this time was not such as to afford many opportunities to the Lancastrians. James II, a king of eminent talent and a strong supporter of Henry VI, had been killed in the previous year, August 3, 1460, by the explosion of one of his own cannons at the siege of Roxburgh. Scotland was thus left to the conflicts of parties by which she was always troubled during a regency. The young King James III was just nine years old. The Queen Mother, Mary of Gilders, naturally had much influence in the government, but she had to share the control with Kennedy, the distinguished Bishop of St. Andrews. Both, it is true, had at the death of James II labored to carry on his policy of supporting the Lancastrians in those civil troubles in England which offered such good opportunities to the Scots. But early in 1461, Philip of Burgundy, a good friend to the Yorkists, at the request of Edward IV, sent an embassy to Scotland, specially to win over the Queen Mother's support for the Yorkist government. Philip was Mary's uncle and the overlord of her family in Gilders. The effect of his embassy was such that the Scots were no longer united in support of the House of Lancaster. Nevertheless, although by the time the Lancastrian family fled to Scotland after Towton, Mary of Gilders definitely favoured the Yorkist cause, yet she did not refuse them admittance. The party of Kennedy was strong enough to ensure them a good reception. Henry, Margaret, and their son were given quarters first in Linlithgow Palace and afterwards in the Dominican convent of Edinburgh. But they seem never to have stayed long in the same place. In August, the Queen and her son were in Edinburgh, but Henry had gone back to the neighborhood of his lost realm and was said to be at Kirkubri with four men and a child. He must have gone to be near the Scots' army, for in May or June of that year, shortly before the coronation of Edward IV, the Scots even sent an army to besiege Carlisle, which was held by the Yorkists, but were beaten off by Warwick's brother Montague, who was one of the wardens of the marches. Thus Margaret was only partially successful in gaining help from Scotland. The diplomacy of Edward IV spoiled her plans, and detached Mary of Gilders from her side. But Margaret's plans extended further than Scotland. They aimed at bringing in France also, and so encompassing England with a ring of enemies. Charles VII was her uncle by marriage. It was in his reign that the English had been driven out of France, and now he had a chance of completely turning the tables by invading England in the interests of the Lancastrians. Accordingly, it was not without some prospect of success that Margaret sent three of her faithful followers, the Duke of Somerset, Lord Hungerford, and Robert Whittingham, on a mission to him. Evading the ships which Edward had sent out to guard the sea, they landed at Dieppe sometime in July. But just at that time, unfortunately, 
Charles VII died, July 22, 1461, and the new king, Louis XI, was much too politic to back a losing cause. The Lancastrian commissioners were placed under surveillance, and all their documents and writings seized by King Louis. They were, however, able to send off letters to Margaret, giving an account of their detention. Of the three letters sent by different boats, one at least was captured by Edward's sailors, and it is from this that the story of the arrest may be gathered. Louis, who, as Dauphin, had quarreled with his father, was living at the time of Charles VII's death at Edan, in the territory of Philip of Burgundy. After being crowned at Reims and holding a court at Paris, Louis went to Tours to spend the hot and dry summer in the pleasant hunting country by the Loire. To Tours, accordingly, the arrested Lancastrian envoys were summoned. There they were given a good reception and sent back to Scotland, but without any real offer of help. It was said that Louis was induced to treat them kindly by Charles, Count of Charolais, Charles the Bold, son of Philip of Burgundy. Charles, unlike his father, favoured the Lancastrian family, and was a personal friend of Somerset, whom he had met when the latter was stationed at Guine. But the diplomacy of Edward reached everywhere. While Somerset and Hungerford were attempting to negotiate for Margaret, Edward's envoys were waiting at Calais, ready to seize the propitious moment for influencing the French king. This embassy consisted of Lord Wenlock, Sir John Cly, and the Dean of St. Severin's. Although they were delayed for some weeks in Calais owing to the disturbed state of the Pale, they were able, through the mediation of the Duke of Burgundy, to ensure for a time, at any rate, peace between France and England. Thus the year 1461 passed. Henry, Margaret, and her son were still in Scotland. Edward IV was content to leave the guarding of the northern border to the wardens Warwick and Montague. The Paston letters show that the country in general had not yet settled down into quietness. In February 1462, Edward made an example of John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, Albert, the Earl's son, Sir Thomas Tudnam, a turbulent man who for many years had made discord in Norfolk, and two other knights. These, on suspicion of preparing aid for Queen Margaret, were tried in the court of the High Constable John Tiptoff, Earl of Worcester, and executed on a scaffold erected for the purpose on Tower Hill. The Duke of Somerset, since his return to Scotland from the unsuccessful mission to Louis XI, had made a fresh diplomatic journey to Flanders. He returned without much success in March. It was clear that if anything really was to be done, Queen Margaret must do it herself. In April she set out with four ships, provided, no doubt, by Bishop Kennedy, from Kirkubri, and sailing down St. George's Channel, arrived safely in Brittany on April 16th. She was well received by Francis II, the last reigning Duke of Brittany, who gave her 12,000 crowns. From Brittany she passed on through Anjou, where she visited her father, René, Duke of Anjou, titular king of Sicily. But the aged René had no great resources, so the queen in August passed on again and visited Louis XI, probably in his favorite castle of Tours. 
Hitherto, Louis had been neutral, showing himself friendly both to Lancastrians and Yorkists, but doing nothing for either. Now he saw his chance, and on the security of Calais, which Margaret pledged to him, though it was not in her hands, he agreed to furnish her with men and money. An expedition was to be immediately organized to invade the north of England. It was hoped that the party which favored the Lancastrians in Scotland would cooperate with the French expedition, but Warwick had already been spreading his diplomatic meshes. In April, as soon as Margaret left Scotland, he had met Mary of Gilders at Dumfries and confirmed her in her neutrality. It was supposed that he had broached the subject of a possible marriage between herself and King Edward. Nevertheless, Margaret prepared for her invasion of England. The expedition which Louis XI fitted out for her was of no great size, but it might be sufficient to see some base of operations in the north of England where a general rising might be expected. The Queen, with three ships and eight hundred Frenchmen under Pierre de Brézé, Seigneur de Varennes, leader of the expedition of 1457 against Sandwich, left Boulogne, probably late in September or early in October. At the same time, Louis XI meditated an assault upon Calais, but the design was not carried out. Although Edward IV had a certain number of ships under the Earl of Kent on the seas round England, they were not able to guard the whole coast, for Queen Margaret's small squadron was able to reach Northumberland. They landed near Banborough on October 24th. The successful passage of the North Sea by Margaret was probably due to the fact that the English fleet had been drawn to the west to meet a force of 60 French, Breton, and Spanish ships, which were said to be taking merchandise to Flanders. These were met and scattered by the Earl of Warwick's fleet. De Brézé was a veteran of great resource, fidelity, and courage. He was personally disliked by Louis XI, who had put him at the head of Margaret's force in the hope that he would never return. He soon showed what an energetic man could do. The north of England was still very disaffected to Edward IV, and though nominally submissive, was ready to cast off allegiance on the least provocation. In those days, when there was no regular army or corps of professional officers at the disposal of the crown, governors and captains of castles and of garrisons had to be chosen from the local gentlemen. Thus the strong northern castles, Banborough, Annick, Dunstanborough, were in charge of northern gentry, whose loyalty to the new king was not proof against an appeal to their old allegiance. Although the country as a whole did not rise, the great castles opened their gates. They appear to have been badly victualled for a siege, but nothing short of treachery or lack of spirit on the part of some of the defenders could have made them yield so quickly. Margaret put Lord Hungerford in charge of Annick, the Duke of Somerset and Sir Rafe Percy, both of whom had come to her standard, were appointed to hold Banborough. Dunstanborough was committed to the Lancastrian Sir Richard Tunstall, whose brother Sir William Tunstall was a Yorkist, and had been in charge of Banborough. By this time, end of October, Henry VI had managed to join her from Scotland. But the Lancastrian force was still small, and there was no general rising. It was known that Edward himself would soon be in the north with an army. 
Accordingly, the Queen and her squadron once more took to the sea to go for help to Scotland. By this time she must have had more ships than those with which she came from France. The weather was bad. Such a great storm arose that four of her ships, including her own, were wrecked off Holy Island. Henry, however, must have been in another ship because there's no mention of his having been in personal danger. Margaret had to abandon her ship and all her belongings in it and take to a small open boat in which she was fortunate to reach Berwick in safety. Many of the soldiers on the wrecks managed to get ashore on Holy Island and took refuge in the church, but were attacked by two Yorkist gentlemen, the Bastard of Ogle and John Manners, and most of them killed or captured. Pierre de Brézé, however, was conveyed by a fisherman to Berwick, where he found the intrepid Margaret already arrived, having successfully braved the sea in her frail carvel. At this moment, affairs were in a critical state for the Yorkists. Three of the greatest of the northern castles were held by their opponents. These castles were open to the sea, which gave them a ready means of communication with Scotland. It would be difficult for Edward to command the seas off Northumberland because of the continual threats from French and Spanish fleets on the south. A great effort was undoubtedly needed. Edward made the effort. He prepared a large train of artillery for castle sieges, great guns and other great ordnance, and had it transported from London, probably by sea, to Newcastle. He called to his standard all the magnates of the kingdom who favoured his cause, two dukes, Norfolk and Suffolk, seven earls, Warwick, Arundel, Shrewsbury, Worcester, Kent, Westmoreland, Essex, thirty-one barons and fifty-nine knights followed him to the north or met him there. These would bring their men from the country districts. Nor were men of the towns wanting, for Edward had sent his summons to them too, and they had responded to his call. King Edward left London for the north on November 3, 1462, but seems to have got no further than Durham, being detained there by an attack of measles. Nevertheless, the castles were vigorously besieged from December 11th by Edward's captains. The siege of Bamborough Castle, inside which were the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Pembroke, Lord Ruse, and Sir Rafe Percy, with three hundred men, was undertaken by Lords Montague and Ogle. Annock was besieged by the Earl of Kent and Lord Scales, Dunstanborough by the Earl of Worcester and Sir Rafe Grey. The Yorkist artillery brought to the scenes of action from Newcastle did great damage to the walls. The Earl of Warwick, as King Edward was indisposed, had a general command of all the operations. He kept his quarters at the castle of Warkworth, ten miles from Annick, and rode every day to the lines in front of each of the castles and superintended the sieges. Stores of provisions were accumulated at the port of Newcastle where the young Duke of Norfolk was stationed to forward the victuals and anything else that was required to Warkworth, from which place Warwick distributed supplies to the respective camps. All this time King Edward lay sick at Durham. But the arrangements for the war were carefully thought out and successfully executed. A good reserve of men was also kept at Newcastle, and no one could get leave to go home even for Christmas. John Paston's younger son John was with the forces at Newcastle, rather ruefully contemplating a residence there over Christmas, by which time he foresaw that all his money would long be exhausted. 
the sieges were over in just under a month. Banborough and Dunstanborough surrendered on Christmas Eve, Annick under different circumstances on January 6th. King Edward showed himself merciful and forgiving. When Banborough and Dunstanborough surrendered, the Duke of Somerset and Sir Rafe Percy were not merely allowed to go free, but on swearing allegiance to King Edward were restored to possession of their estates. Percy was even given the guardianship of the two castles, a mark of confidence on the part of Edward which he promptly abused. The Duke of Somerset was also treated handsomely. He was allowed to wear the king's livery and to serve in an honorable place in King Edward's host. The other lords who showed themselves less pliant, the Earl of Pembroke and Lord Ruse, were allowed to go to Scotland under a safe conduct. So ended the year 1462. Annick, under Lord Hungerford and Sir Richard Tunstall, still held out, relying on a relieving army of Scots which Margaret and Pierre de Brézé were conducting from Berwick. This cannot have been a very great army, as the Scots government was by no means united in favour of the Lancastrians. It was, however, superior to the force with which the Earl of Warwick had to meet them. Margaret and the Scots arrived near Annick on January 5, 1463. The garrison of the castle at once sallied out and joined them. Warwick had too small a force to prevent this, and so he cautiously took up a defensible position between the castle and a marsh nearby. There seems even to have been some thought of retreating altogether, but Somerset, who was serving with Warwick now, counseled him to stand fast and defend his camp. By this advice he did a good turn to King Edward's cause, for the Scots, seeing that the Yorkists presented a firm front, actually retired from the field without attacking. Somerset's services were appreciated. King Edward rewarded him with twenty marks weekly for his expenses and also furnished the daily pay for the Duke's men. Annick Castle surrendered next day on condition of all the garrison being unharmed in life and limb. The fiasco of this Scottish invasion must have caused intense disappointment to Margaret and de Brézé. But the truth is that although the Scots and the French were old allies, it was seldom that things went well when the French were actually with a Scottish host. The two nations cooperated best from a distance. The year just finished had been a successful one for King Edward. With the exception of Harlech, there was now not a single castle which held out against him. But the year 1463 was not many months old before the work had to be done over again. In May, Sir Rafe Percy, the Lancastrian, whom Edward had forgiven and put over Banborough, let the Scots into the castle. Annick also was betrayed about the same time by Sir Rafe Grey, a Yorkist who had been sorely disappointed because King Edward had only made him constable of the castle, the superior position of captain being given to Sir John Ashley. Thus Annick and Banborough again received a mixed garrison of English, French, and Scots, a combined army of the same composition with King Henry and Queen Margaret among them besieged the great castle of Norham on the right bank of the Tweed, eight miles southwest of Berwick. But on Warwick and Montague approaching with an army of relief, the Scots broke up their leaguer and abandoned the siege, making their retreat in such haste 
that they left many of their belongings behind them. It is said that only one man, a piper, dared to face the Yorkists, for he stood upon a hill with his tabor and his pipe, tabering and piping as merely as any man might, standing by himself till my lord came unto him, he would not lessen his ground. The courageous piper was probably some Englishman of Queen Margaret's following. The Earl of Warwick, pleased with the spirit of the man, took him into his own service, and found in him thereafter a faithful follower. The relief of Norham took place in the last half of July. Queen Margaret and King Henry, with those Lancastrians who still followed them, had made their way by different routes to Banborough. Margaret had two narrow escapes. In the flight, she had been captured along with her son by the enemy, and only rescued by a chivalrous Yorkist squire who took pity on her, and after that, before she regained her husband's quarters, her life had been threatened by a brigand, whose heart, however, was unexpectedly melted by her appeals, and by her placing the young prince in his hands for protection. Without assistance from the outside, the cause of the Lancastrians must soon fall. Their resources were almost at an end. Yet Queen Margaret, with her tireless devotion to the service of her husband and her son, would never give in so long as one chance remained to be tried. The sea, although not unguarded, still offered her a means of seeking assistance. The great fleet which King Edward had ordered to be fitted out about the time of the siege of Norham had never been brought into being. As Warwick was showing himself successful on the land, Edward saved himself the expense of further efforts by the sea. Thus Queen Margaret was able to leave Banborough by sea and pass over to Flanders. The date of her departure was probably at the end of July 1463. King Henry, who was never to see his wife again, was left behind in Banborough, from which he retired into Scotland. End of section 20